It was the slap heard round the world. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I didn't watch the Oscars. I just saw about it later. But it's interesting what happened. In case you've lived in a hole somewhere and you don't know what we're talking about, on Sunday night during the Oscars program on live international TV, Chris uh, Will Smith walked up on stage and slapped Chris Rock for something he said about his wife. And that one event changed everything about this year's Oscars. The next day, I didn't hear anybody talking about who won what, what award. What I heard people talking about was, the next day they were saying, did you see it? And do you think it's real? That one thing changed everything. That was certainly true in the days of Jesus as well. One thing changed everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, that changed everything. That changed the way we look at our lives. That changed the way we look at our sin. That changed the way we look at death. And that changed the way we look at eternity. One thing changed everything. Today we're starting a new series called Changed. And in this series, we're going to walk through a single chapter of the Bible during the entire month of April. We're going to look at this one chapter because this one chapter is one of the key chapters in the Bible because it, ex it explains to us and describes for us the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that one event changed everything. The scripture we're going to be studying not only today but through the month of April is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would you open God's Word with me to that text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now you may be wondering, why are we talking about the resurrection now? I mean, Easter's not for two weeks. So why are we talking about it now? Listen and, and hear, what, hear my heart on this. The early church never would have dreamed of talking about the resurrection once a year. It never would have entered their mind just to talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. This wasn't a seasonal holiday for the early church. This was good news. I mean, those of you who are grandparents, can you imagine talking about your grandbaby one time a year? No, you've got good news. So you share it, and you share it freely, and you share it with lots of people. And that's the same with the resurrection. The good news of the resurrection is the nail on which the rest of Christianity hangs. So why would we talk about it just once a year on Easter Sunday? In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing 1 Corinthians 15, this may surprise you, but he was not writing an Easter message. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, he was writing about the cornerstone of the gospel. He was writing about the foundation of our faith. Romans 10 verse 9 explains to us how crucial this, this idea of the resurrection is. It says, if you confess with your mouth, look at it here. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not even possible to be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Resurrection is not something that's confined to one day. The resurrection is the heart of what we believe in the gospel. 
So that's why we're going to spend the whole month of April talking about the resurrection rather than just one Sunday. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one thing that changed everything. So let me give you a little background on 1 Corinthians 15 before we read the text. Since we're going to spend so much time in this one chapter, let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand the context of this chapter. This letter was written to a group of Christians that Paul knew personally. They lived in the ancient city of Corinth. Paul knew these people personally because he had started the church there. He had been in their city. He had lived with them and he planted that church there. Now, several years later, they write to Paul a letter. They wrote to Paul a letter asking several questions about faith. Several questions about the relationship with God. Several questions about how to do church and all those kind of things. And so Paul sits down and he writes what we call the letter of 1 Corinthians. Lots of 1 Corinthians, not all of it, but lots of 1 Corinthians is simply a response to the questions that they had. And apparently one of the big questions that they had was about the resurrection. Now it's not that they didn't believe in it, but rather they didn't fully understand the implications of it. So Paul sits down and he writes to them about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this chapter was written specifically to answer some of their questions. And you might be interested to know that this chapter is the longest chapter in the Bible about the resurrection. We have more information about the resurrection in this one chapter than we have anywhere else in the Bible. So, as Paul begins this chapter, he uses a key word to describe the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He uses a key word to describe the message of the resurrection. And that key word that he uses, he uses twice in the first two verses. The key word is the word gospel. Look for that word as I read verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, look on the screen. Let me point out some key words here that are important. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. This is the heart of what I want to talk to talk to you about. I, I want to remind you of the gospel, and it's the gospel that I preach to you. In other words, this gospel is so important, this message is so critical, I preached it to you, and which you received. That is, they had received it, they had trusted it, they had welcomed it into their lives. On which you have taken your stand, they are still believing the gospel. They are still standing on, if you will, the gospel. And by this gospel, this gospel is so important, by this gospel you are saved. So the two things about the message in 1 Corinthians 15 that I want to point out to you today, two things about, two important things about the gospel that you see here on the screen. And here's the first one. The gospel is a life-changing message. I know you probably know that, many of you do. Maybe those watching online, perhaps you know that. But I want this to sink deep in your soul, that the gospel is a life-changing message. And in fact, Paul wanted the people that he was writing to, the people in Corinth, to understand that as well. Because he begins the letter saying this way, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. This was not new, a new message to the people of Corinth. They had heard it before. They had heard Paul 
preached the gospel. They had believed the gospel that they had heard. And by that gospel, they had been saved. But now in this letter, Paul begins by saying, I want to remind you again of the gospel. And he wants to show them in this 15th chapter why that gospel is so important to their lives. Can I say to you that what we're going to look at today and Quite frankly, what we're going to look at throughout the month of April is probably not going to be new information for most of you. And yet, it is critically important for all of us. So let me today and this month remind you of the gospel. Paul says, verse 2, And by this gospel, you are saved. Here's how important this gospel message is. Here's how critical it is that you understand this gospel. It is by this gospel that you are saved. That word saved is such a rich word. You know what the word means? The word saved is the Greek word sozo. S-O-Z-O. Sozo. It's the Greek word that, that simply means to be rescued from danger. That's literally what the word means. He says, by this gospel you are rescued from danger. By this gospel, you are sozo. By this gospel, you are saved. It is such a rich word. But rather than spend a lot of time kind of digging into that word, I thought I'd just give you a little video to help you kind of get a picture of being rescued. I want to put that in your mind, that, that saved means rescued. And so here's a little video that I can't, it's just seven seconds. I call it the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. See if you can guess which one is the shepherd and which one is the sheep. (laughs) Have you picked out who God is and who we are? We're going to watch it again, not yet, not yet. We're going to watch it again, but let me tell you something. He's pulling that sheep out, that's sozo. He's rescuing that sheep. That's literally what the word it means to be rescued. He, he pulls the sheep out. And then, well, let's just watch it again. Isn't that just like us? I mean, that is so like us. That's why you need to understand one other thing about this thing called salvation. That salvation, as it is taught in the Bible, literally has three tenses. What do you mean by that, preacher? I thought if I'm saved, I'm saved. You are. But let me explain salvation. It's such a rich word. It really has three tenses. First of all, salvation means I have been saved from the guilt and penalty of my sin. There's a past tense. I have been saved from the guilt and the penalty of my sin. Now, the theological word for that is justification. It simply means, I have been saved from my past. Can somebody put an amen there? Maybe you've had a past and you're grateful that God rescued you from that past and that God forgave you. He forgave the guilt and the penalty of your sin. That's sozo. You've been rescued from that. And that's one of the things it means when you say, I I was saved. I was rescued from my past, the guilt and penalty of my sin. But also, the second tense of salvation is, I am being saved from the habit and the power of sin. I'm being saved, present tense, right now. I am being saved from the 
from the habit and the power of sin. And the Bible, the big word for that, the theological word for that is sanctification. That I'm becoming more like Jesus every day, hopefully. That I'm, I am being saved. I am being saved from the power of sin and the habit of sin. And then there's a third tense to salvation. That is, I will be saved from the presence of sin. And the theological word for that is glorification. Let me paint a picture for you. One day, one day, listen to me. Christian, are you listening? One day, you are going to leave this sin-plagued world and you're going to go to a holy place in heaven with the Heavenly Father and you will be saved from the very presence of sin. Hallelujah. Amen. So, when Paul says, by this gospel, you are saved. That's what he's talking about. That this gospel is such a life-changing message that, it sa- that this gospel saves you from your past, the, the penalty of your sin. It saves you from the presence, from the, the pull and the power of sin. It saves you from the presence of sin. Eventually you'll be taken out of this sin-plagued world. This is what he means when he says, by this gospel you have been saved. My past and my present and my future are secure because of my response to the gospel. Can I say to you, we should never get past the gospel. We should never get used to the gospel. We should never take the gospel for granted. We come to God with nothing in our hands to offer Him except our sin. How Edward Moat said it when he said, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now hear me. The moment, listen, this is, this is going to take, take a turn right now, so I want you to listen carefully. The moment we turn away from the gospel is the moment we get in trouble. The moment we turn away from the gospel is a dangerous moment. Paul talks about that in verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved if, notice that word if, If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The gospel is a life-changing message, but the sad reality is that not everybody's life is going to be changed by it. Paul says there's the possibility that some of you may believe in vain. It's not that you don't believe. You do believe. But you believe in vain. Now what in the world is that talking about? This is not, underline not, this is not a warning that you're in danger of losing your salvation. It is a warning instead that some people have a shallow, non-saving faith. They believe in vain. The shallow, non-saving faith that does not last to the end. It is a shallow, non-saving faith and they eventually walk away from it. It is a shallow, non-saving faith and they eventually turn their back on it. That's why Paul uses these words. Look at it again. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. You might want to underline that text. If you hold firmly to the gospel. I think D.L. Moody probably summarized this the best 
in the 1800s when D.L. Moody said, faith that fizzles before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. I'll, I'll give that to you one more time in case you want to write it down. Faith that fizzles before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. But even stronger than that is the word from Hebrews 3.14. And here's what the Word of God says. We have come to share in Christ. We have become Christians. We have been saved. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Jesus talked about this very thing. Remember the parable that He told about the sower and the seed? And in one of those those scenarios that he talks about, he talks about that the seed, some of the seed fell on rocky soil. And he, he later explained that. And Jesus said, the man who hears the word is represented by the rocky soil. He hears the word. He receives it with joy. It's not that he doesn't believe. He hears the word. He receives it with joy. But since he has no root, Jesus said, and I quote, he lasts only a short time. Ladies and gentlemen, when someone does not continue in the Christian faith, it is evidence that they don't have saving faith. I'm not talking about your son or daughter, and they're just not in church right now. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about your son or daughter, your grandkids. It's like, you know what, They, they, they don't seem to be walking with the Lord right now. I'm not talking about that. You cannot lose your salvation. But what I am talking about is those folks who intentionally walk away turned their back on, stopped believing the gospel. Now, the perfect example of that, of course, is Judas Iscariot. He eventually showed that he was not a true believer. People ask me from, t- from time to time, do you think Judas is in heaven? Absolutely not. Judas Iscariot showed by his lifestyle, by his decisions, he walked away from Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus. 1 John 2.19 says it best, look at this. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The message of the gospel is a life-changing message. Here's my point. The message of the gospel is not something that you, you consent to years ago, and then it never changes your life. It's not a prayer that you pray and then you go on with your life. The message of the gospel is not something that, well, I got baptized, I joined the church, and then you live any way you want to. No, listen to me and hear me carefully. The gospel is a life-changing message. And it is such a life-changing message that you hold on to that gospel your entire life until the day you take your last breath and God takes you to heaven. Because the gospel is a life-changing message, you hold firmly to the gospel because you know and I know that is our only hope. The gospel is a life-changing message. But what is the gospel? Thankfully, Paul outlines the heart of the gospel for us. And if you don't have your pen ready, get, get your pen ready. He's going to outline for us the heart of the gospel. And that brings me to the second point. The gospel focuses on the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to me. It is wonderful that you invite people to church, and I want you to do that. It is wonderful that you tell people that God loves them, and I want you to do that. But neither of those things is the gospel. 
Paul explains to us the heart of the gospel in the next verses. And I want you to make sure you get this. He begins in verse 3 by saying, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now this is so incredibly interesting here. Paul was saying, the message did not originate with me. I received it. Somebody else shared it with me. Somebody else taught it to me. I received it. But then, he, not only did the message not originate with me, he says, but the message didn't stop with me either because I passed it on to you. And that's our responsibility as believers, as Christians, that what we have received, we pass on to others. And that's why we go on mission trips. And that's why we have the mission offering. Because what we have received, this life-changing message of the gospel, because we have received that life-changing message, we should pass that on to somebody else who hasn't received it. So Paul says, I passed it, look at the text. I passed on to you, verse 3, as of first importance... This is not just important, it is of first importance because everything we believe hinges on this. Everything we believe hinges on the gospel. So then Paul summarizes the gospel in the most complete, concise way you will ever find in Scripture. And the heart of the gospel is verses 3 through 5. You might want to highlight it in your Bible, verses 3 through 5. Here's what he says. For I received, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter and then to a lot of other people. We'll talk about that. Our faith, ladies and gentlemen, is built on this. This is the foundation of everything we believe. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the reason we have hope. And this is what we cling to every day as believers in Jesus Christ. And here is our faith. Four powerful truths. First of all, he says, Christ died for our sins. Would you say our? He he died for our sins. He did not die for his sins. He didn't have any sins. He died for our sins. Number two, he was buried Now, why is that important? It is important because it is confirmation that he really did die. You see, there are liberal scholars and skeptics who would say, well, he really didn't die. It's called the swoon theory. He really didn't die. He just kind of passed out. And they put him in the tomb, and then eventually he came back. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you something. He was D-E-A-D, dead. And that's why they buried him. You bury somebody who is dead. So... Christ died, He was buried, confirmation He was really dead. Number three, He was raised victoriously from the dead. In other words, this was confirmation of all of His claims about Himself and His mission. All of that was confirmed when He came back from the grave. When God put life back into His body, they recognized He is who He says He is. And if He is who He says He is, He can do what He says He can do. Because He came up out of the grave. And number four, He appeared. It's interesting, over a period of 40 days, you might want to write that down, over a period of 40 days. He didn't just appear one time. It's not like He appeared one day and He left. Over a period of 40 days, He appeared to different individuals and different groups of people. Paul mentions six appearances in this text, but there's actually more than that when you study the Gospels. But Paul confines his text to six different appearances, and he lists them for us here. But, but before we get to that, notice what he says, 
Pick up the text with me in verse 3 again. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins. Notice this phrase. According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and He was raised on the third day. And there's the phrase again. According to the Scriptures. Paul probably had in mind Old Testament Scriptures that talk about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He probably had in mind texts like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 110 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 22 or Hosea 6.2. Again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, either directly or indirectly, the Old Testament foretold the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul repeats this phrase two times that this happened according to Scripture. In other words, Paul's saying, I want you to understand something about his death, burial, and resurrection. None of this was an accident. God planned every part of the death of Jesus. God planned every part of the burial of Jesus. God planned every part of the resurrection of Jesus. It was all part of His plan. And the heart of the gospel is that this is what, watch this, this is what God did for you. There's nothing in that text about what you need to do for God. It's all about what God did for you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we call it good news. The gospel means good news. It is good news because it is the story of what God has done for you. Now, Paul's going to make a case that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fact and not fiction. And to make that case, Paul mentions different individuals and different groups that Jesus appeared to over a period of 40 days in different locations to prove He is alive. So let's read the text beginning in verse 5. And that He appeared Peter and then to the twelve And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul is making the case. I want you to know something. This is fact. It is not fiction. This is historical fact. And Paul emphasizes, there's eyewitness proof. That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so the very first one that he mentions is Peter. Peter, according to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Christ appeared to Peter on Easter Sunday. And then it says he appeared to the twelve. Again, according to the Gospel of Luke, he appeared to the twelve on the evening of Easter Sunday. Now the twelve is, of course, the name for the group of the original apostles and it was actually 11 of them there because Judas was gone now. But that was still their name. They were called the Twelve. But then something very interesting. Look at the text with me. It says, after that, verse 6, after that, look at your Bibles, I'm going to ask you a question. After that, he appeared to more than how many? More than 500. Now, two or three interesting things about this note is that, first of all, we don't see that anywhere in the Gospels. There's no record of his appearing to 500 plus people. We don't doubt that it happened. We know that it happened. But it's just interesting that this is a fact that that Paul heard about that uh, the other gospel writers do not include. It's significant because it shows that the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection cannot be explained away by 
personal hallucinations. You know, sometimes skeptics and liberal scholars, etc., who are really attacking the resurrection, they say, well, you know, people see what they want to see, you know, and uh, yeah, Peter says he appeared to him, but people see what they want to see, and Peter just had a hallucination, and, and you know, people like that, they, they just had hallucinations, but, but I would submit to you that it is impossible for 500 people in one place to have the same hallucination. I would say to you that that is beyond the realm of possibilities for 500 people all together in the same place to have the same hallucination. So Paul is making the case, this is not fiction, this is historical fact. And then he goes on to explain it this way. I love this description. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Most of whom are still living. Some, some have fallen asleep, some have died since then. Now let me give you a little, a little math here. This letter, 1 Corinthians, was written around A.D. 55. Give or take a year, about A.D. 55. The resurrection of Jesus occurred, give or take a year, around A.D. 33. So let's do a little math. 55 minus 33 is how many? 22. So Paul is saying, listen, he appeared to more than 500 people, and most of those people are still alive, and you can go talk to them if you want to. We still remember what happened 22 years ago, don't we? If it was significant. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. Do you remember Y2K? Yeah, of course you do. You know how long, how long ago Y2K was? 22 years. 22 years ago, if I were to say, do you know for sure that Y2K happened? Is that myth or is that fact? Oh, no, no, no. No, I remember it. I was there. It was 22 years ago. I was there. I remember exactly. I remember all about it. And you can give testimony because you were an eyewitness. And Paul, as he's writing this letter, says, I'm going to tell you something. He appeared not only to me, or not only to Peter, not only to the twelve. He appeared to 500 people at one time. Most of them are still living. And if you want to fact check me on this, just go talk to them. Because it was only 22 years ago. And they still remember vividly what they saw and what they encountered. Resurrection is historical fact. It's not fiction. Then he goes on to say, verse 7, Then he appeared to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. We'll talk about James in a moment. Then to all the apostles, who were just the earlier, all the other early followers of Jesus. And then he says, and then last of all, he appeared to me, verse 8, as one abnormally born. Paul was not part of the original group of apostles. That's what that word abnormally born means. He had not lived with Jesus and followed Jesus like the original apostles. His entry into the apostolic office was not the normal path, if you will. That's why he says, I was abnormally born. But the testimony of the eyewitnesses is one of the critical pieces of the evidence that Jesus Christ was resurrected, that he is alive. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the hope of the gospel. Now, before we leave, I want you to notice something that's incredible to me. In these six appearances, in the, look, look on the screen. He appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to more than 500, he appeared to James, he appeared to all the apostles, he appeared to Paul. I want you to notice that in these six appearances, three people are mentioned by name. There's three groups. The groups are the 12, the 500, and all the apostles. But then three people are mentioned by name. 
well, why are these three singled out? The interesting thing is they're, they're singled out not because of their successes, but rather because of their failures. Let's look at each one. First of all, Peter. Peter denied that he even knew the Lord. You remember that story? He denied that he knew Jesus. And Jesus, after he was resurrected, appeared to him. James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is Messiah? It would be kind of a hard step, wouldn't it? And so James did not believe. James actually, at one time, he actually mocked Jesus, made fun of him, because he thought, James thought, that Jesus was kind of out of his mind. But at the resurrection, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his half-brother, and from that point on, James became a believer. So Peter denied Jesus. James doubted Jesus. And the last one mentioned is Paul. Paul despised Jesus. You know the record well, how Paul went out to obliterate the name of Jesus everywhere he could go. He despised Jesus. And one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Several years after the resurrection, he appeared to him to prove to him that he had been resurrected, that he is real, and that all of this is, is, can be life-changing. Now, here's my point. I want to show you how life-changing the gospel really is. Look at those three individuals again. Peter, who denied Christ, became the chief preacher after the resurrection. He preached the first gospel message at Pentecost. Standing in front of thousands of people. 3,000 were saved. He was preaching and here's the man who denied Christ now standing in front of thousands of people preaching Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. That's because the gospel is a life-changing message. James, the half-brother who doubted his own brother. James became the key leader of the New Testament church. The, the key leader of the New Testament church because... The gospel is a life-changing message. Paul, Paul the man who wanted to, to obliterate the name of Jesus from planet earth. Paul the man who wanted to erase the name of Jesus and everything that had to do with Christianity became a missionary to the whole world to tell people about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus because he had experienced that the gospel is a life-changing message. One thing changed everything. One of the reasons maybe that Jesus appeared to these three individuals is to show you the power of the gospel. That even if you have denied Him, even if you have doubted Him, even if you have despised Him, the gospel can still change your life too. You see, the Easter message, the reason we're going to be dealing with 1 Corinthians throughout the month of April, the Easter message is not just simply an announcement. It is an offer. It's an invitation. God wants you to respond to the greatest news this world has ever heard. The greatest news that the world, this world has ever heard is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised according to the Scripture. The greatest news this world has ever heard is that God did that for you so that you 
could have a relationship with Him. So that you could be rescued from your past. So that you could be rescued from the pull of sin in your present. And so that you could one day be taken to heaven in the future. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That's the gospel. You bow your heads with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. I would love for you to understand something today that the life-changing message of Easter is just as true today as it was on that very first Easter morning. The life-changing message that changed the life of Peter. The life-changing message that changed the life of James. The life-changing message that changed the life of Paul. Can literally change your life too. If you're ready to make that decision and that commitment, I want to help you. I'm going to close today with a prayer that you can pray as you begin a relationship with God. There's nothing magical about these words. It has to come from the heart. But I'm going to lead you in a prayer that was similar to the prayer that I prayed many years ago. You see, I haven't always been a believer. I haven't always been a Christian. There was a day in my life when I said, I believe that Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. I believe that there was a day when Jesus came up out of the grave. And I decided I wanted to make Jesus Lord of my life. And so one day, many years ago, when I was 11, I, I stepped across that line through faith and I said, I believe. You can step across that line today too. You can pray with me right now. You don't have to pray out loud. These are not mystical, magical words. It's just really the cry of your heart, the attitude of your heart that makes the difference. Pray with me if you'd like to receive Christ and begin a relationship with God. God, I now believe that you are real. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus was buried. And I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And I believe that he appeared to many people to prove that he was alive. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, come live in me now. Come into my life and into my heart. By faith, I claim you as my Lord and as my Savior. I repent of my sin. And I trust in you totally. Thank you for what you have done for me to change my life. And I now receive it as a gift from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.